Happy Monday. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. It is time to dive into the world of news in commercial real estate. I'm your host, Tyler Cobble. And before we dive in today, I want to say uh, we are currently hiring here at the Cobble Group, which is my commercial real estate brokerage, for a leasing broker. So I'm going to come in and handle our portfolio of office, mostly office and retail leasing. Uh, it's over half a million square feet right now, mostly in the East Nashville and Madison areas. So if you are interested in joining our team here and working that portfolio alongside whatever book of business you've already got, feel free to reach out uh, directly to us. Go to tylercobble.com slash career. That will take you to our page where you can dive in and uh, apply for the gig. So let's go ahead and dive in. Like I said, we've got an abbreviated episode today. Uh, so we're going to jump right into Market Watch. So this week, we are looking at Minneapolis. Go ahead and share the screen here. So Minneapolis, uh, we have actually not really covered anything in the northern Midwest. I don't even know if we've covered Chicago. Uh, but let's talk about Minneapolis. Where are we in terms of overall real estate prospects? It is number 39 on the Urban Land Institute's uh, emerging trends in real estate across the United States. Let's see, they're number 46 in terms of home building prospects. So certainly not towards the top of the list uh, in in on I guess at, on this at all, uh, but also kind of not really towards the bottom, right there, right in the middle. Minneapolis is considered a magnet city, uh, which is in also an 18-hour city in the subgroup. So it is considered basically a brother or sister city to Austin, Charlotte, Denver, Nashville, Portland, Oregon, San Diego, you name it, there it is. Let's see here. They're 3.41 out of 5 on the local market perspective investor demand. So about average. Um, seems to be kind of average across the board. Let's see what we've got from this article. Fox 9, concern grows for the future of commercial real estate in downtown Minneapolis. Let's see what's going on. Ex experts in the commercial real estate market are concerned over what the future may hold for offices and businesses in downtown Minneapolis. Looks like uh, Target announced it was suspending its city center operations where its lease expires. And now the Angel Food Bakery in downtown has announced that it will also be moving away, um, headed to St. Louis Park. Let's see this coming from Laura Moore um, over at Collier's. We're seeing a lot of activity from the downtown market interested in properties around the 394 corridor because they are interested in better safety. Interesting. I mean, it's real. It's very concerning. So it sounds like uh, this is this is actually a different reason for office to be struggling in one of the cities that we've been covering, and that's safety. They don't seem to feel they are safe in downtown anymore. Uh, let's see, commercial real estate market in the first quarter uh, of 2021, Twin Cities has seen 1.5 million square feet of negative absorption. That's intense. Negative absorption refers to office space that will be absorbed back into the market because tenants do not intend to renew leases. Negative absorption is uh, really bad for a market. It obviously mean, that means 1.5 million net square feet has come back onto the market, which means there is a lot of opportunity for probably very cheap office space right now if you're interested in Minneapolis. One thing I want to note: this article is talking about. Q1 2021, the emerging trends from ULI comes out in the fall of the prior year. So I would imagine if 
if Minneapolis is is headed on this downhill uh, trend like we are seeing, it probably would actually fall further down the list um, in UOI's emerging trends than than what we just saw. Uh, to be fair, it looks like Target accounts for about a million square feet of that square footage, which is huge. That's I mean that's massive. I mean that's two thirds of the net net absorption. Let's see. It's not just the office tenants. There are a lot of other businesses that choose to be downtown because of Target. Um, so there's concern that other vacancies are going to drop because of this announcement. When a giant tenant like that decides to relocate, it's going to set off some red flags for other companies, which means they're probably going to consider relocating as well. So let's see. Safety is number one priority for those leasing office space in downtown. And in order to mitigate the problem, city officials need to face, uh, they need to address it head on. Let's see. That's interesting. I wonder what's happening in downtown Minneapolis that's such a concern. Occupancy in office buildings is roughly 15 to 17%. That's incredibly low. An increase in vaccinations will help people bring people back. Many are reevaluating their needs for space. Currently, 2.4 million square feet of new real estate under construction in Minneapolis. I would be terrified if I was under construction uh, for new commercial space in Minneapolis right now with that much available on the market. All right, let's see what else we got. This one's from the Business Journal. The pandemic's uneven impact on Twin Cities commercial real estate sales. COVID-19 pandemic dampened the Twin Cities commercial real estate investment market in 2020, but not all areas felt the impact. Overall, sales volume fell 29% in 2020 compared to 2019, but the real story is the differences across property sectors. Pandemic only briefly paused industrial real estate's hot streak, for instance, but it hit the office market like a bucket of cold water. Um, I'm, I'm actually surprised that it even remotely impacted industrial even for a second, just considering how, how critical industrial is to our supply chain. And maybe that's why, right? Like our supply chain took such a hit. Maybe that's why industrial got scared for a minute. But I mean, you look at all property types, industrial did better than anything else. I mean, people didn't stop needing groceries. They didn't stop needing stuff. And industrial largely either manufactures it or stores it or distributes it. Let's see here. The pandemic arrived in Minnesota in March of 2020, accentuated the strengths investors were already seeing in the industrial market, where an ongoing shift toward e-commerce and away from brick-and-mortar retail was already driving an increase in demand for logistics and warehouse space, of course. Uh, Saying it basically had the opposite impact on office space, which, of course, it did. Everybody started working from home. Looks like the Twin Cities office market saw a definite pause in the second quarter of 2020. Total sales volume in the metro area ended up in the $921 million range for the year, which was a decline of 48% from the $1.78 billion in sales in 2019. That's a massive drop. Contrast what happened in the office market with industrial sales. Total sales volume in the Twin Cities was $1.57 billion in 2020, a relatively small drop of just 7.5% from 2019 where there was roughly over $1.7 billion in sales. That is such a close dip. I mean, I know, obviously, you want to continue seeing a positive trend um, in sales, but 7.5% is such a close, like, small dip or small decline that, honestly, that could have been, 
like a normal year. Like maybe a certain amount of industrial just didn't come for sale in the market because owners were holding it and it just fluctuated like that. So that's really interesting to see um, industrial barely changing at all. Let's see. If you think about the major food groups, they've already been bifurcated more dramatically than we've ever seen. Uh, that's referring to industrial, retail, office, and multifamily sectors. COVID really expedited some trends that we were starting to see already. That's the really interesting thing. I mean, COVID has expedited trends that we were thinking, you know, hey, maybe five, 10 years from now, we'll start to see this. I mean, it caused them to happen within a year. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, it looks like industrial is doing fine just about everywhere. I mean, look, there may be some pretty solid opportunities to buy office buildings in Minneapolis now and convert them into apartments, convert them into hotels. It's, it's not cheap to do so, but also if there's that much square footage available on the market for lease, there are going to be some landlords that are desperate to just offload the property. So, you know, look, Minneapolis may not be doing well overall, uh, but that means that there's an opportunity somewhere, right? That's that's the beauty of commercial real estate. There is always an opportunity somewhere. All right, let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. So these are all the articles that we think are trending uh, for the world of commercial real estate. How are things changing? What does the future look like? This first one coming at us from the Wall Street Journal. Commercial property sales volume returns to pre-pandemic levels. Recovery has been fueled by low interest rates and optimism on fight against COVID-19. It's kind of interesting to read that headline after going over what we just just did with Minneapolis, right? Let's see here. U.S. commercial real estate sales this year have rebounded to pre-pandemic levels fueled by, I mean, of course, they started off the article with the exact same thing that I just read. Commercial property sales landscape looks a lot different than it did before the health crisis hit in early 2020. Cities, including New York and San Francisco, have fallen in favor, as have property types such as downtown office buildings and convention hotels. Note how they say downtown office. Suburban office is actually doing really well. So, you know, we talk about that every week. I know uh, y'all probably get sick of, you know, hearing me say it, but office overall is not struggling. People like to just say that. These asset classes overall are not struggling. It's it's too broad to just say office is dead. Some parts of office are doing really, really well. Let's see. Sunbelt cities posted record sales and investors flocked to property types that performed well during the pandemic, including amenity-packed apartment buildings, warehouses, office buildings that cater to pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries. Um, of course, suburban office. Investors purchased $144.7 billion of U.S. commercial property in the second quarter. Not surprisingly, that was close to triple what it was in the second quarter of 2020 when the pandemic was in its early months. Man, I I will never forget the uh, second quarter of 2020. It was like April, maybe it was end of March, early April, when we had that bear run in the market where like Wednesday, record stock market lows. Thursday, record stock market lows. Friday, record stock market lows. And commercial real estate had actually held very well um, through the pandemic up until that point. But that Friday, every single investor that we were working with called and terminated their contracts on every property we had. I mean, we went from this massive pipeline of sales and development to literally zero that Friday, because that was when everybody kind of lost their cool and they got nervous about what was going on. And that was tough. 
Um, it was kind of wild to see what was going on. And people just wanted to sit around and wait, right? They, they were just going, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next month. If there's some crazy opportunity, bring it to us and we'll take a look at it. That, of course, never happened. But that's that's what they were saying. So, yeah, that was that was a scary quarter. Moving on, this one's from BizNow. Amid green energy push, data centers consider the nuclear option. A pair of nuclear-powered cryptocurrency mining facilities. That's like a sentence that 10 years ago you would have been like, what the hell does that even mean? A pair of nuclear-powered cryptocurrency mining facilities. The first two in the United States are expected to go online by the end of 2022. In Pennsylvania, Talon Talon Energy will build a hyperscale cryptocurrency mining facility adjacent to its nuclear power plant in Luzerne County. Nearby in Ohio, cryptocurrency infrastructure operator Standard Power announced a deal to power its facilities with nuclear energy for the next five years. Between them, the two nuclear mining hubs will be able to house almost 200 megawatts of computing power, comparable to the world's largest data center campuses. That's amazing. That's actually been a, a hot topic across the world is cryptocurrency mining and how much energy it actually drains. There have been, uh, I mean, I guess illegal mining operations taking place that have gotten shut down by governments because they're they're draining too much power. And at this point, you know, Elon Musk tweeted about it, how he's looking at green cryptocurrency or something. Of course, the crypto market just tanked. Um, I always think it's... <laughs> I'm not big on cryptocurrency. I do have some of my portfolio in that asset class. But look, whenever one person can tweet and absolutely crash or skyrocket an investment uh, asset class, like that's something you got to be really careful about, right? Like nobody can just come out and tweet about commercial real estate and it loses half its value overnight. That's one thing that I love about commercial real estate. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting issues going on with the mining because it, it requires so much power now to do it because I guess back in the day when Bitcoin first got started, it was relatively easy to, you know, mine and break open these coins or whatever the terminology is. And now it was, it was designed to get more, more and more difficult as time went on so that fewer and fewer coins could ever get mined. So they're just, you know, used to be able to do this stuff on a laptop or with, you know, a single server. And now it takes 200 megawatts of computing power. Let's see. There's almost insatiable power demand for cryptocurrency mining operations, which are essentially just data centers used to perform complex calculations that verify blockchain transactions and create digital currencies. Right now, millions of Bitcoin mining devices around the world are generating 130 quintillion of such guesses every second of the day nonstop. That's crazy. Combined, these machines are now consuming as much electrical energy as a country like the Netherlands. Wow, that's a lot of power being consumed just for cryptocurrency. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. That was, that was a power drain that did not exist like 10 years ago. Right? When did I don't even know when Bitcoin? I, the first time I ever heard of Bitcoin was like 2012, 2013. I'm sure it, I'm sure it was around before that, but I mean you think about that. 10 years ago, this power drain did not exist on the grid. As demand for energy increases among data center and cryptocurrency processing clients, so does the call for decarbonizing these energy sources. It will provide low-cost, reliable, carbon-free power to the data center clients on campus. 
While a move away from fossil fuels is part of Bitcoin's trend toward nuclear power, it's only part of the story. Nuclear power is cheap and widely available, which experts say is at the heart of its appeal. Unlike many cloud and co-location data center operators, miners do not have to worry about the controversy around nuclear power's safety driving away clients. They don't care, right? And that's one of the biggest reasons that nuclear power never really took off. You look at Chernobyl, and I think that event alone scared so many people away uh, from it being a possible energy source, despite how great of an energy source it can actually be, that it just never really took off. Uh, it could be bad PR. It's tough, you know, especially if you're trying to, you're doing it near a city or whatever. But yeah, I mean, look, if you're if you're basically out there make, making your own digital currency, why do you care what anybody thinks? Um, so maybe, maybe that'll be a good push for nuclear power. I think we should have some more of that um, in, in our country. Let's see. China's crackdown on its cryptocurrency industry uh, has fueled the sudden growth of nuclear power data. China is home to more than half the world's cryptocurrency mining, but that is soon to change. Looks like the availability of nuclear energy is being dangled as a carrot to fleeing Chinese miners by both U.S. power companies and politicians like Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. What a... I, what a weird paragraph to just read. China is home to more than half the world's cryptocurrency mining, but that will soon change. Um, interesting. Like I said, not not too big on, on Bitcoin. But one thing that I do love about this is that it is is leaning into what our wild card was last week, which is ESG, environmental, social, and government governance, the this massive trend in commercial real estate towards greener, more sustainable development. And that's exactly what this says, right? You go out and you use nuclear power to power your your buildings and your projects. That just makes it more desirable for investors. It's a better story to sell to your to your customers. I like it. All right, let's get into this next one. This is from CNBC, California billionaire's real estate firm to begin allowing tenants to pay rent in Bitcoin. All right, so we're starting to see a trend in cryptocurrency uh, kind of pushing its way into commercial real estate. That's interesting. We believe that cryptocurrency is here to stay, Caruso founder and CEO Rick Caruso told CNBC. The real estate firm invested in Bitcoin and will begin accepting it as payment for rent. It's not about the next year or five years, but rather a long-term bet on crypto. Who, man, do I have some thoughts on that. Uh, I would never pay my rent in crypto. And here's why. You look at how volatile crypto has been it just in the last six months, right? Like my portfolio is worth probably two-thirds what it was, which, I mean, it basically doubled and now it's worth two-thirds what it was at the height. So it's it's still doing well. But think about how, how volatile that is compared to the American dollar. You know, five years ago, people were buying pizzas with, you know, one Bitcoin or buying a car with, you know, 100 Bitcoins. And look at what that would be worth now. Can you imagine if you spent one Bitcoin on a pizza five years ago and now you're like, oh, okay, it's worth $33,000 or whatever it is? Like, man, that better have been a hell of a good pizza uh, for me to not feel bad about making that decision. I, I, I know that Bitcoin was created to be a currency, but it has yet to reach a point of stability where I feel it makes sense to actually utilize it that way. At the moment, it's literally an investment platform, right? Like I just, it's not, 
consistent enough for me to feel good about utilizing that to pay rent. So I get why a real estate firm would start accepting Bitcoin as rent because, you know, hey, we'll take the risk on it because we think that in, you know, one year, two years, five years, this will be worth a lot more than what they're paying today. But as a, as the, uh, customer or the client in that transaction, I do not see any upside whatsoever. Looks like the privately held firm said it has invested a portion of its corporate treasury in Bitcoin and entered into a partnership with Gemini, the cryptocurrency exchange and custodian led by CEO Tyler Winklevoss. Look at that, the Winklevoss twins. We believe that cryptocurrency is here to stay. Bitcoin is the right investment for us. And we've allocated a percentage of what would normally go into capital markets into Bitcoin. I think that's smart. I mean, look, you're just diversifying your portfolio, right? Oh, uh, here we are. Bitcoin was trading just below $56,000 per coin on Wednesday, up from around $11,000 a piece in early October. Okay, this is obviously an older, this article is probably two months old, right? Like, that's crazy. It was Bitcoin was $11,000 last October. It was $56,000. Let's see when this the article is dated. April 7th. Yeah, two months ago, three months ago. Uh, $56,000 and now it's down to 34. Like imagine if you paid rent like with Bitcoin back in, you know, April and you would have actually done really well, right? Like you would, you would be coming out on top, but now you're paying, you know, it's worth $34,000. Your money's worth significantly less, almost half. Tesla bought Bitcoin using cash on its balance sheet. Of course it did. They're accepting payment for the electric vehicles. Square has also purchased Bitcoin for its corporate treasury. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's to me, it's an investment. I just don't see that as actually being a currency yet, uh, but it will likely at some point. Some critics of Bitcoin have questioned its current price as well as its utility as a means of transaction. Look at that. I mean, the end of the article is saying exactly what I've been saying. Given its classification from the Internal Revenue Service, there are also tax implications of using Bitcoin to make purchases. Caruso said his company's entrance into crypto is part of a long-term bet. It's not about the next five or ten years. Looking forward to the next decade. Yeah, I just, uh, to me, uh, it's not up there yet. I think at some point... Look, I've said enough. Y'all kind of know my thoughts on it. Let's get into private equity deal dive. This is pretty big. CBRE to pay $1.3 billion for 60% stake in international project manager promoting green energy. This is from BizNow, and it's going along again with our wildcard from last week, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. That is a massive that's a trend that you really want to keep an eye on because it's so much easier to raise capital. There's a story to tell. It's very easy for people to buy in. Global commercial real estate giant has agreed to acquire a 60% stake in UK-based project management firm Turner and Townsend Holdings for $1.3 billion. The all-cash transaction values Turner and Townsend at $2.2 billion and will preserve the company's independent branding and operating structure with company leaders maintaining ownership of the remaining 40%. Turner & Townsend operates in 46 countries, but hopes to use its new partnership with CBRE to significantly expand its U.S. business. It will be nested in the Global Workspace Solutions branch of CBRE, within which it will be publicizing its financial disclosures once the transaction closes, likely by the end of this year. That'll be interesting to see, because those, those companies make a lot of money. 
Uh, the, the majority of its revenue comes from real estate project and program management. About 38% of, town, of Turner and Townsend's business comes from a combination of infrastructure and natural resources projects. The company had already been working to expand its business into more areas of environmental sustainability, such as green energy and carbon neutrality. I mean, look, that's probably one of the reasons that CBRE was able to value it at such a high price, right? I mean, $2.2 billion. I don't know what this company's revenue is, but I guarantee you, just like we've been talking about, by having that greener, sustainable side of it, it's probably a lot easier for CBRE to justify a higher ticket price. CBRE had already invested in renewable energy earlier this month when a special purpose acquisition company, oh my gosh, here we go again with the SPACs. Y'all have heard my opinion on SPACs. I'm not a fan. I think they're scams, but here we go. It created, (laughs) agreed to merge with Altus Group, which installs solar panels, electric vehicle charging stations, and other equipment at commercial properties. CBRE will own a minority stake in the new publicly traded version of Altus Group, which is initially valued at nearly $1.6 billion. Pretty interesting. It looks like, I mean, we've seen a massive trend in private. I keep saying massive, 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 massive. We've seen a growing trend in private equity this year of these giant firms acquiring stakes in other companies because they had all this capital set aside for real estate deals and those deals didn't exist. So they had to put that capital together. And guess what? That meant they were buying other companies. Looks like a few weeks before that, CBRE announced the acquisition of Union Gaming, a gambling-focused investment bank based in Las Vegas. In February, it acquired a 35% stake in co-working operator Industrious for $200 million. CBRE has also been investing in prop tech firms for years, most recently as an investor in a $100 million fund managed by Metaprop and shows no signs of slowing down. CBRE is basically printing cash, and they are placing it wherever they can. All right, let's get into PropTech. So this week, we are looking at an article from Globe Street. Uh, for UDR, removing friction from leasing process has operation margins soaring. Its next-gen tech brings it closer to fully autonomous leasing, led by chatbots, self-guided touring, and QR codes. I love that. It's been interesting to see how much the leasing process has changed in multifamily over the past year. Like once you're not able to actually go out and go on tours, how quickly all of the the technology that we have available to us already just immediately gets implemented. I mean, there's fully virtual tours or fully self-guided tours at almost every apartment complex I've seen now, at least the newer ones. By adding new technology, that the diversified multifamily REIT with approximately 53,000 apartment homes has been able to increase its tour volume, conducting upwards of 40 self-guided tours per day while employing only a fraction of multifunctional office personnel at a given community. These findings have validated the beliefs that most prospective residents do not want to be sold to, but instead prefer to self-serve on their schedules. Ah, look, people want to shop, right? Like they want to go find something that they like without being disturbed. You know, do you want to walk into Target and immediately have somebody come up to you with a clipboard and say that you have to follow them around whenever you want to buy something? No, absolutely not. Today, 97% of the company's tours are self-guided. 97%. I guarantee you that number two years ago was like almost zero. That's, I mean, it's amazing. You think about that, how much does that increase 
you're you're in a lie on a property, right? If you can get away with one less staff member, that's fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars a year, maybe forty, depending on what they are. I mean, that's money that goes directly to the bottom line. And look, if your property is valued at a five cap, I mean, $40,000 at a 5% cap rate is $800,000 in value. You, just by eliminating one position, you've created $800,000 in value. So it doesn't matter if this technology costs them $400,000 to implement, they're going to win, right? And there's no way it costs even remotely that. Um, removing artificially imposed obstacles, such as how many leasing people can simultaneously conduct tours from the leasing process is a top priority. And the steps the company has taken in recent years to do this have boosted its operating efficiencies and margins. I mean, think about that. If you have to wait on leasing staff to go on a tour, you're, you have a bottleneck in your system, right? Like you can only, that one person can only do so many tours. But if somebody's allowed to go on self-guided, you can have any number of tours going on at one time. It doesn't matter. And in fact, it would actually be really good for the space. I could see you being able to create a renting frenzy, right? I mean, imagine, imagine if you're going on a self-guided tour and you see three other people walking into the same apartment. Well, you're immediately going to go, well, man, I, this is probably going to be gone if I don't rent it soon. I like it. When it comes to shopping for apartments or shopping for anything, we observe that prospective residents prefer privacy so they can either self-compare to other apartments they have previously toured or freely converse with a significant other on the pros and cons. This is more challenging when a salesperson is present throughout a tour. The feedback we've received from prospects indicates they like this sort of lower stress experience. Totally agree. I've thought that for a while. Let's see here. The company's platform, which promotes universal self-service, leverages the latest technologies to improve the customer experience and allow prospective residents to shop on their schedules. Too many times, consumers trying to contact a company just want quick answers to their often straightforward questions, and most businesses are making it overly difficult to get those answers. It is incredible how difficult some companies make it to, to be a customer, right? Like, I just want to, how much, how much is the apartment per month? I don't want to know, you know, this and that about it. Just how much is it per month? I mean, sometimes that simple question can, I mean, you know, if it's me, the reason I'm asking that is because I'm probably, I'm pretty interested and I'm ready to likely move forward if the price is reasonable. And I know that there's some, you know, there's a bunch of sales tactics behind why you want to explain this and that before you start giving pricing to people. But I mean, come on. Sometimes people just want the price, and it and it actually turns the consumer off when you tr when you just skirt around that question. Consumers have moved online to efficiently satisfy their informational needs, and that's where chatbots can be very impactful. Their ability to quickly and accurately serve up information that customers need to make a decision is second to none. That's pretty cool. I mean, chatbots have been trending on social media for years. It's interesting to see them start to make their way into like actual businesses. In recent years, UDR has listened to and analyzed thousands of calls from its call center. Wesson says that 85% of the questions were factual, where prospects asked about pricing, availability, and application questions. The other 15% were things like, is the community safe? Or how's the neighborhood? The latter are questions that challenge even humans to answer because their answers are often subjective. Interesting. 
For chatbots during the selection process, some of its criteria included how quickly can it learn, what questions can't it answer, will it remember prospects that come back, can it communicate via text, web chat, and email. The chatbots are not perfect, but they do learn quickly given enough data. For example, colloquialisms within questions such as how much do these apartments run can trip them up. Well, of course. UDR had to teach the bot that this is the same thing as asking how much is the, is the rent of this apartment. Um, that's pretty cool. Convincing C-suite about AI's value. Some who work in the multifamily industry still need convincing that artificial intelligence is not coming for their jobs. These leaders need to understand AI is about increasing productivity. Their customers already understand AI-powered assistance as they interact with them in other facets of their lives. Therefore, customers are comfortable with them. For executives, their response can be, AI lacks the human touch. And Siri can be so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, there's not much required to train a bot on apartment leasing. Like with UDR, prospects typically ask very similar questions. I mean, at the end of the day... AI has the ability to create more jobs in in this type in this world, whether it's commercial real estate, multifamily, whatever. Think about it. If you're able to more efficiently lease up your properties, you're going to get to stabilization faster, which means that you're going to refinance the capital or sell the project faster, which means that you're going to move on to the next project faster, which means you may have to hire a, a bigger support team to help you go back to raising capital again or finding the next project or whatever that ends up being. So, you know, I could actually see this being really good and helping to create jobs or at least be a net zero, right? Let's see. Yeah, it just goes further and further into chatbots and how they're working. Here we go. Improving operating margins. The technology we use, including Lease Hawks chatbot, has made us more cost efficient and optimized our workforce. This improves our operating margin, but it also provides UDR associates with better compensation and career advancement opportunities and allows them to focus more thoroughly on customer service. There you go. You're creating a better experience for people. One technology trend uh, that is surprising in the past few years is how quickly today's consumer has transferred their communications to text from email. I don't think that's really surprising. I can't stand my email. In fact, my email uh, signature line, it says something like, uh, I don't really check my emails for a faster response. Text me. I mean, my cell phone is in there. Look, the way that we look at emails, and I think this is, this is something that a lot of people need to get through their heads. Email is basically like sending a letter. I, I don't have time to just sit in my email all day and wait for you to email me and then respond. Right? Like, I've got my phone on me. Shoot me a text. I'll shoot you a quick text back. If it's not important, send me an email and I'll get to it in the next, you know, week or so. It's just kind of how that is. Like, we've all got better things to do than spending two hours a day in email. It's crazy. And most of it's just not important. Let's see. UDR found that the decision to lease or not was often based on, not based on the length of the tour. It appears that most prospects tour community to validate information they've already seen online. Yeah, I mean, if you're touring, it's because you likely like the place. That's pretty cool. So, you know, again, that AI technology is starting to make the leasing process more efficient, which means that you're going to be able to increase your NOI. So if you want to um, start pushing your investments and you know, look at better returns for your investors or quicker returns for your investors, investing in artificial intelligence may be the way to go. 
All right, as I said, that was a uh, today is a short episode, so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Next week, we will be back to full length. If you guys have any questions on any aspect of commercial real estate, investing, or whatever, feel free to jump in these live streams Monday at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard, and I'm happy to talk through that with you. Um, if you're in Nashville, we are starting up a breakfast uh, or slash coffee slash get your own coffee uh, at Retrograde every other Thursday at 7 a.m. Um, if you're interested in that, drop me a note in the comments. I'll get you the information. I'll just send you a calendar invite so that you can come join us. It's pretty informal. It's just going to be a bunch of commercial real estate investors or people that are interested in commercial real estate hanging out, drinking coffee, and talking about it uh, and networking because you know that was the most impactful thing that I did in my career as a commercial real estate investor and developer was just getting out and meeting people and having conversations and building relationships. It was the best thing that I ever could have done for my business. And so I want to continue doing that for other people because, uh, look, it's it's fun. So feel free to drop a comment, join us on that. Um, otherwise, don't forget to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Leave us a review if you are on the podcast, and we will see you all next week.